0: Ornithology, herpetology, mimology. when you hear these words, what do you think of? You're probably aware of the meaning behind the suffix ology, meaning the study of, which may make you think these words solely refer to rigorous scientific study, test tubes and all. What if I told you an ology, such as ornithology, the study of birds, doesn't have to be so alien? Joining me is Meg Little, a socio-ecological researcher whose work has taken her far and wide, exploring the connection between people and nature and creatures and nature. Hi, Meg. Hi, Will. So can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do?
1: Yes. So um, I currently work as an environmental scientist, um, but I've done kind of a a lot of different jobs in the environmental realm, environment Mm. and sustainability. Um, So I've done permaculture programming, I've taught environmental ed and outdoor leadership. Um, Kind of anything that had to do with people and conservation or nature, Mm. uh, I dabbled in. (laughs) Um, And my research, I'm a socio-ecological researcher, which is, like you said, just kind of a fancy way of saying, um, looking at the connection between people and nature, socio and ecology. Hmm. Um, So I've done research in Kosovo and Argentina, um, looking at the relationship between people, communities, and protected areas.
0: So when we talk about protected areas for this conversation, what exactly does that mean? there be protected areas right here in portland maine or are they just kind of these exotic more lush landscapes
1: yeah good question um any and all areas can be tiny parks Hmm. um right in the center of of cities um they can be trails along the water along a river close by or they can also be think you know yellowstone national park was like the first um and the model for national parks at least. Um, So they can be huge wild Hmm. spaces as well.
0: You also mentioned how you are teaching people the value of conservation. How did you get introduced to this type of work or how did you get interested in science and studying nature?
1: Well, I guess growing up, I had like a big backyard and I grew up camping, and so I always had something of a relationship to outdoor spaces and to nature. But I think for me, really, the, the spark happened more as an adult. My, I remember my first backpacking trip uh, in college. I was studying out in Arizona and did a backpacking trip in the Superstitions Mountains. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember my mind just being blown at the idea that you could put everything you need on your back and go out into a wild space and Mm. just survive for a few days (laughs) Um, and that was the first time that I really unplugged I feel like mentally emotionally and started really being kind of in awe of the natural world Mm. and then kind of this appreciation and admiration and love for nature led to wanting to understand it more and learn more about it. And so that has kind of led to environmental science and science in general. Yeah.
0: I think that is the absolute perfect segue into our discussion about the bird of the day, the great blue heron. I truly believe for people to invest in something like nature, conservation, they need to be able to connect with it. And even people living in the densest of cities, like in New York City or Bangkok, Shanghai, whatever, there's still an opportunity to engage with nature and to behold its splendor. So I actually have a story about my up close and personal encounter with a great blue heron, of all things. This was actually a little bit into my birding journey, so it wasn't necessarily a formatted. Formative, how do you say that word? Formative. There you go. Formative (laughs) experience. That's staying in. Um, (laughs) Formative experience um, for like birding or to like get me into birding. But it certainly reinforced the idea that I can have an impact on my community, even if it's just like impacting one life, you know, at a time. So like one bird at a time. This was. Just before I moved to Maine, um, one of my last weeks in Seattle, I went down to uh, the Valley Lots in Seattle. Um, so this is um, kind of a, a large shipping area. Not shipping, but fishing. So lots of boats and the changing of water. So salmon come and uh, spawn and seals feed and whatnot. And lo and behold, there's a great blue heron rookery, the colony of nesting herons right there. Um, so I took my binoculars and I was looking at the great blue heron chicks really high up in the trees. They nest super, super high up, um, which is curious because they're such a big bird. We'll get into it in a second. But as I was watching one of the nests, this smallish chick fell out of the nest.
1: So you I witnessed this.
0: Yeah, like in the binoculars, I, I oh, watched wow. it fall out. And I kind of like because I, I knew like it had to have been hurt and so I went down and I found a path down to the bottom of the hill where it was, which was completely covered white um, as I'm sure you can guess why being below Great Blue Heron nest. But the baby Great Blue Heron chick was just laying on its back kind of like struggling to flap its wings and kicking its legs so it was still alive and it didn't look like its wings were snapped in half or anything like that, it looked mostly dazed. Um, So the first thing I did was call a wildlife rescue nearby in Seattle, and they didn't pick up. So then I, on my phone, searched for another one, called them, they didn't pick up. And then finally I found a third wildlife rescue in uh, Linwood, Washington. So it was about 45 minutes away, and I called them and I was like, I just saw a great blue heron fall out of the nest, and it seems like it may be hurt. Can you come help it? And they said, no, we can't come to get it, but if you bring it to us, we'll help it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I took off my jacket, and I gingerly scooped it up and like wrapped it in the jacket so it wasn't kicking and flapping. And I took it to my car and put it in a little box and then drove 45 minutes with this literal dinosaur in my passenger seat that was slowly becoming more and more like, Days, I guess. So that was really kind of a tense drive. Not only because I was slightly afraid of super sharp bill and these sharp claws, but because I had this creature that was the size of a toddler sitting in my passenger seat that I knew I might not ever have a chance to like see that up close again. While I was driving, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Just I wanted to just behold it's like wonder so finally i got there and wrapped it up in the jacket and took it over and gave it to the vet techs or whoever they were and then i filled out some papers saying like i want to know what happens like if it makes it if it can be rehabilitated and released and i chatted with them a bit too just to learn about great blue herons and like what happens with them when they like if they're common um to that center and they said no for two reasons. One, they can't be returned to the nest they fall out of their nest because they nest so high it's impossible to get them back. Um, so the parents can't retrieve a chick that falls out. And since they're vulnerable and can't fly, a predator will just get them like wow. that. And then the second reason is people won't take them to the wildlife rescues because they're afraid of them they said, you're one of the few people that was brave enough to drive with a gray blue heron, or even approach one. So yeah, I filled out the paperwork and I donated a little bit to help cover the cost, because this was a nonprofit that was just making the world a better place by helping animals. And then a few weeks I heard back and unfortunately it didn't make it. Oh, Apparently, no. one of its wings was fractured in such a way that it couldn't heal, and they can't amputate wings. I think it's a part of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that prevents amputation of wings. They just wow. have to put them down because um, it's considered inhumane for birds to be without wings. But yeah. Wow. So I, I was really sad to hear that the little buddy didn't make it, but I was still grateful for the opportunity to like be up close with such a bird, even like a common bird, the great blue heron. And kind of understand, like, this bird was scared, and it was hurt, and we can be scared and hurt, and it's like, we're all part of this big scared ecosystem, hurt. Yeah, scared, ecosystem. hurt world. And so, I, like, if, if I can help the bird, I can help a person, and if I can help a person, then that means that they can help me, and, you know, I think understanding and caring about conservation can only lead to us caring about people and helping other people, too.
1: Wow, that's a cool story. Sad ending.
0: Yeah. But... Maybe next time I'll just skip the ending. The wild. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Few birds have the stalking power of the great blue heron, Ardea Herodias. I don't mean their ability to effortlessly stop fish or small rodents in their track with their powerful bills, I mean its ability to stop a person in their tracks. Never once have I been with someone who saw a great blue heron and did not gasp and freeze, bewildered by their majesty. They are colossal prehistoric looking birds that are totally content hanging out right next to the places we call home, blending what feels like the mystical ancient world with the modern day. Okay, in a sense, Herons can produce a similar reaction to people. When we learn about something that seems foreign or impossible to understand, it feels like stumbling into a new world. I personally find this experience exciting. Knowing this, let's learn a little bit more about the common critter of the hour. My first question for you, Meg, is have you ever seen a great blue heron?
1: I've seen many great blue herons.
0: I figured as much, because they are found all throughout the United States, and they even, their range extends down through Central America as well, and Southern Canada. Great blue herons are, like I mentioned, pretty big birds, but they only weigh four to seven pounds. So I mentioned picking up a great blue heron chick, and the first thing that struck me was that it was huge. The great blue heron chick was probably about two feet tall, and had a a wingspan of probably four feet at that point. But it weighed probably as much as like a piece of paper, it felt like. Which just astounded me, because we all know that most birds have hollow bones, making them a little lighter, and feathers are, of course, extremely light. But it's hard to really apply that logic to a bird as big as fish. Their full-grown wingspan is about six to seven feet and they stand when they're fully grown about four feet tall it's a big bird it's
1: impressive yeah
0: when it comes to their plumage they aren't necessarily as blue as their name may they suggest they're more of a graphite gray like a pencil color kind of confusing because there's also a gray heron <laughs> um not the great heron but and there's also a little blue hair, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later. But they're also, they've got white accents and black um, feathers as well, including some kind of rusty maroonish feathers, namely on their legs and kind of shoulders of their wing. I'm
1: gonna look at my drawing.
0: Ooh, that one over okay, <laughs> there too.
1: I love it. I maybe overdid the uh, Rufus color. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I love it. So their bills. <laughs> Um, As we're looking at a wonderful drawing by Meg. Ardea herodias. The heron family, there's probably about five to seven subspecies of the great blue heron, most of which can be found in the United States. So you've got a Pacific Northwest subspecies, another species in mostly southern Canada and then a particularly special subspecies in Florida which is actually all white the great white you know about the great
1: white heron I do
0: it what do you know
1: about the great white heron literally that (laughs) (laughs) that it lives in Florida and it is white
0: yeah so these are really fascinating because I also don't know a ton about them but what I do know is obviously they're all white so they're kind of more like a great egret, um, closer to that than a great blue heron but genetically they are in line with the great blue
1: heron how they figured that out is a mystery to me <laughs> i think i know how okay <laughs> so
0: i was asking this question to one of my ornithologist buddies why are some birds considered one species and why are some completely different species. So like with birds, sometimes they can look almost identical, but they're way different species. And then you have species like, I don't know, the ring-billed gull. That'll like hybridize with everything.
1: Yeah. And
0: they're not a different species. It turns out it's the genetics. So if one of the key indicators of the different far-separated species is can they reproduce together? Right. And the great white heron, the great blue heron, can't. I think that's at least part of it, but I don't know. I'm no scientist. The kind of cool thing about that, though, is when they do hybridize, you get kind of a wonky mish, mix, mash, mishmash of the white and gray plumage.
1: When a white morph is with a
0: normal great
1: blue heron yes. morph
0: <laughs> yeah so
1: wow i
0: don't quite understand how this happens but a common kind of morph mix up of those two is the great blue heron body and the great white heron head wow so it literally looks like you just like a little kid like playing like with uh, paper dolls cut the head off of <laughs> one and like pasted it onto another very strange But another thing I think that is really important when it comes to understanding the difference between species and subspecies and all of that is where they live and what they eat, how they behave. So all of these Great Blue Heron subspecies in the United States will live around water in particular. Like I said, they're large wading birds, so they love to hunt primarily by spearing fish with their powerful hills so they live in the shorelands marshlands wetlands really anywhere water can be found a little side note about that too and about how just being connected with nature can kind of change people's perspective on animals my stepmom loves birds and my dad he likes great blue herons. He's, he's like man those are so cool they're like i Um, So my stepmom, when they just recently bought their new house, kind of built up their backyard to be this haven for birds, like little birds, lots of bird feeders and uh, water and grass for them. So like, build nests and some bird houses. So they've got all sorts of smaller birds like uh, finch and sparrow and woodpeckers. And last time I was in Seattle chatting with my dad and I was like, what kind of bird would you like to see in your backyard? Because there's so many different types of common birds. And he's like, I would love to see a great blue heron. Like, What can I put in my backyard to attract a great blue heron? And I was like, honestly, just a little pond. Yeah. Like, they are so adaptable and so prevalent in the United States that if you built a little pond in your backyard and put a decent amount of small fish in there, I bet a great blue heron would show up. At some point. So I hope my dad's listening and he starts (laughs) building the pond. Yeah, so you might find them in a marsh or on the beach, wherever there's fish, but they also like to eat other things. On the menu for great blue herons as well are frogs and small rodents, little mammals really anything that they can spear and shove down their very long throats. But that's important because, and it plays into why they're so common, because when it gets cold, they don't always migrate. A lot of birds migrate during the winter because their food sources get slim or disappear. So we've talked about before how some smaller species like warblers who primarily eat insects, And the insects are gone during the winter. They have to go somewhere that does have insects or berries, plant life, most of the time underneath snow. Herons switch up what they eat during the winter instead of traveling. When you think of a large bird that primarily eats fish and you're somewhere like Maine, which has its freshwater bodies frozen, no fish, then it would start eating little things like mice and voles or rats. Because it's easier to find those than to drill a hole through ice and pull out the fish. And like these, these poor creatures are like speared, literally, like stabbed through with. So the,
1: they spear the rodents too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few years ago, I read an article online. It was not anything scientific at all, but it was this person saying how the great blue heron. Has such strength in its neck that it can veer through a like an army grade helmet with its bill. So if a human was wearing a like bullet, basically bulletproof helmet, the great blue heron and the heron stabbed it in the head. Heron would,
1: would win. <laughs> it would win.
0: So I always think of that when I'm like, I see a heron up close. That's like a full grown adult, just like. Foraging or right whatever,
1: like I'm gonna give you your space. If that's true, that's that's pretty terrifying. And yeah. Impressive.
0: Yeah. So sharp dagger-like bill. Don't mess with that. And for the record, just don't mess with any wildlife.
1: Yeah, it's a cool note about them being uh, generalists, you know, mm-hmm. and being able to switch up their their prey. Yeah. To stay, there are some that overwinter here in Maine. Mm-hmm. As you know, it's tough here in the winter.
0: Yeah, but I think it makes it extra special, too, when you see something like that in the snow in particular. Yeah. They've got a pretty striking vibe. So unlike most large birds, like herons or cranes, when they fly, they fold their neck in. That ability to kind of recoil their neck and fold it in like that is also helpful for producing more force
1: when they're hunting
0: when they can pull on their neck like this and then yeah. like shoot it off like an arrow almost
1: yeah the way that I identify herons when they're flying they've got those skinny long little legs the, the big wings and then you see those, <laughs> those little legs hanging off the back that seem too long to be possible hmm and that's usually the identifier when they're flying.
0: And their little toe, well, long toes too. I feel like they have particularly long, non-palmated toes. So almost like our, I'm kind of folding out my fingers like this. When you think of water birds, they've got the webbing between the herons not
1: so they much. They don't. So, yeah. huh.
0: It's usually found in species that are more likely to swim inherent They're waders. Yeah, they're waders. I've seen them attempt to swim. It's not pretty, but they can do it. Really? So it's kind of a use in case of emergency situation, but like, if they have to, they will. On the podcast, I talked about during the Red winged Blackbird episode how the blackbirds nest over the water. That's kind of a defense mechanism, because it's harder for uh, predators to climb into nests that are over water. But when the fledglings fall into the water, it's sink or swim. Mm. So red-winged blackbirds, of course, aren't built to swim, but they can kind of keep themselves above the water. Similar with great blue heron.
1: Have you seen the? Uh, have you ever seen a great blue heron kind of sunning itself mm-hmm. with its it, its weird position? Yeah, it like it looks like its wings are extending from its hips mm-hmm. and making little circles. <laughs> We had, um, I lived on an island off the coast of Los Angeles for a couple of years, and there was a resident heron that we'd always see, Whoa. and it would be in that position, and, you know, they're kind of, they're, like, austere and ominous looking, too, yeah. in a way. They're they're big, and, um, we called him the Prince of Darkness for that, <laughs> for that I position. can perfectly
0: picture that, <laughs> and, like, maybe in his head he's thinking of some, like, really epic, like... I'm gonna go destroy the local mouse population today. Like he is the Prince of Darkness for those animals. Yeah. Like if I was a fish and I saw that shadow of a great blue heron, I probably wouldn't understand what that means, but-
1: Swim away fast.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of their posture, they also, when they're not sunning themselves or drying off their feathers, they can fold their neck kind of into their body and then hold their wings close and kind of hunch over i used to have a friend that called them vampires when they would just kind of rest they're not hunting they're not moving but they're sitting standing somewhere yeah i think we should come up with some sort of like comic or movie or something about the of
1: darkness yeah who's a
0: vampire heron this is gold that would be so cool <laughs> do you want to
1: hear my heron story mm-hmm. it's pretty short when I lived on Catalina, I went uh, snorkeling with my friend Tess, and we had this really beautiful moment when we were about to get out of the water where we were in these really small waves, kind of ebbing and flowing, and the sunlight was coming through the shallow water, hmm. and we were just watching, or at least I was just watching, the sunlight filter on the little pebbles, and the pebbles you know, would, would kind of move in and out with the water, I felt like I transported to some alternate universe where I just <laughs> for five minutes was completely mesmerized by the ocean bottom and just kind of floating like a thing, like a kelp or something. And then I looked up and like a few feet away from me was a heron who must have walked over while we were just zoning out with our faces in the water and that being a heron from underneath it that close it was impressive the yeah. size and it, it was really impactful. I like, can still s- visualize that, that image of a heron kind of above me. So it's
0: like <laughs> right next to you.
1: It was a few feet away. It was Whoa. very close. And I think maybe just because we weren't moving
0: hmm. for a
1: while and so it and maybe there was some, something interesting near us that it was checking out but yeah, was it was, uh, was impressive.'re wow. big.
0: When I was listening to you tell that, my first thought was like panic. Like, oh no, were you on the menu? And then thinking of the army <laughs> helmet and the. Ah.
1: I didn't and know that. You didn't max, say that your friends got out of their lives. So. We both made it out. <laughs> okay. Fortunately. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I didn't know that about their beaks at that time. Yeah.
0: And they're long, too. I don't know if I'm in. Probably about a foot long. Big beak. But I love that, especially that you mentioned how it was like being in another world because that's how I feel about learning about science and engaging with the natural world in general. Another thing interesting, kind of connected to your story, is their eyes. So they've got these shiny golden eyes that are front-facing kind of like an owl, so closer to a predator like eagle or whatnot. And they have binocular vision, so they can tell depth perception pretty well, fairly rare in the bird world. Most birds have their eyes situated on the side of their head in such a way that they can see more rather than accurately. But herons need to be able to successfully strike their prey and they can look directly down below them. Wow. So if that heron that you saw was maybe looking like this, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not looking at
1: you yeah he was staring into my soul yeah even though he was looking straight ahead yeah
0: (laughs) so i feel like that's kind of cool a unique thing about their head and then also speaking of their eyes they have more rod photoreceptors in them than most birds which help them see at night so you think about birds at least i think about birds mostly as like going to sleep during the nighttime, and then the owls maybe come out to play but they're like daytime diurnal kind of but I guess herons can enjoy a nighttime stroll on the beach. Hmm. I didn't really find too much info on why they can see at night so well,
1: but Maybe it plays into their whole generalist thing. Yeah, you know, it just gives them more options. Yeah.
0: As I mentioned, they're nesting they nest in large colonies called rookeries or heronries. That can be anywhere from five groups, pairs, nesting pairs of birds, to over 20 in really big colonies. And each uh, nesting pair has three to four chicks in their nest. When I found this one at Ballard Locks, the colony, there were probably about 15 different nests with between two and four chicks in them. I heard sometimes it can be a little uh, competitive in the nest, so chicks will bully their siblings and sometimes even push them out in an effort to get more food. But you can always find a colony near where they uh, would forage. So that doesn't mean that every body of water has a rookery, but if there's one in your town or your city, it's gonna be near. Water That could be a lake or a river or even the ballard logs where fishermen are in and out every day. Oh, something also that I found that was kind of interesting about them is they are monogamous. So they have one partner, but it's every year. So the male will select a new partner every year for nesting. But once they do, they stick with them. That year. Yeah. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. And I think it can also play into their adaptability and kind of prevalence because it would likely mean that the genetic pool is larger. Right? So like every year they're going finding a different one to have different chicks with. It's not like they're just producing the same genetically similar chicks year after year. I don't know how scientific that is, but that's kind of one of my theories.
1: That's good, there.
0: Yeah. Right. They regurgitate their food, the parents, into the chick's throats. It's not a pretty sight. You imagine these foot-long bills. It's kind of hard to line everything up. <laughs> yeah, they're very noisy, very stinky, lots of who? just pouring down into the forest mm-hmm. when they're um nesting so yeah where I was there were also kind of over a walkway. So like that's where I found the heron chick at the bottom of the hill, this like paved walkway. And it looked like somebody just took the world's largest thing of spray paint and sprayed white mm. all over the place. Very pretty sight. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mentioned they're loud their vocalization is a deep kind of guttural squawking and screeching um on the drive here I was practicing my heron. hair your hair
1: squawk yeah would you so I, sure <laughs> yeah i
0: I'm trying to make it like my goal to like recreate the bird calls on the episodes now, so it's kind of like a bra
1: bra bra Deep. That's yeah. deeper than I was yeah. anticipating.
0: No, it's very deep. They usually will do it when they take off. I like to think of it as like a disgruntled, like cranky old man complaining about kids on his lawn.
1: Yeah. Running
0: into his house. There have been times where like, I'll be walking along like I don't know a trail in a forest and I accidentally disturb them. Great blue heron, they kind of blend in, and they'll take off doing this like, brah, 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 you know, squawking, and it's startling, like very prehistoric. I'm assuming dinosaurs sound like
1: that, and it's uh, loud. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard a heron. Really, I think of them as silent. Hmm. Just I think because of of the way that they are usually when they're yeah. waiting. You know, they if you sit and watch yeah. them, they they. Step so carefully and slowly and then they're just still so much and when they take off at least I guess I've probably only seen them take off from far enough where Hmm. I couldn't perceive any sound yeah but I just imagine them like owls and Hmm. in the sense of just like these big wings that just silently come out yeah
0: the note on stalking is really important too because sometimes they play the long game their food i think that plays into their success rate they're pretty successful hunters but sometimes i've watched herons for like 30 minutes plus and don't make any moves at all but they don't staring down the whole (laughs) time uh when i was in hawaii earlier this year there were paddle egrets just all over the place which are fairly similar uh birds to great blue herons they're much smaller, but they eat kind of the same food, more like lizards and amphibians and things like that, uh, but pretty generalist as well. And I noticed one, I had an up close encounter with one, and it was walking through this kind of greenery, and it would stop and stretch its neck up, and then it would wiggle its neck, like its actual neck oh. would move must back have and been. forth
1: kind of like freaky looking. Mm-hmm. I
0: have a video of it. I'll show it to you after this but I, I was like what the heck is going on? How is it doing this and why is it doing it? So I looked it up after that encounter and it turns out they simulate tall reeds. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when you think of a bird stalking through a marshland or whatever and the wind is blowing and the grass is kind of They're doing that too. Wow. And it's so cool because their necks are really long and skinny and it looks just like that. But its secondary purpose is to scare its food. So when you have this like really kind of still, solitary bird, and then you see a sudden like movement like that, and your little mouse, that would freak me out and I'd like kind of flinch or move. And then that split second it grabs them. So really genius. I, I don't think great blue herons can do that, but I have seen them kind of move their heads as they're hunting, getting like a better view or just kind of stirring up
1: prey. Did you say that was a cattle egret? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool.
0: Yeah, they're kind of like the great white heron, but tiny and have a little more auburn on their heads. Usually great blue herons are solitary birds, solitary hunters, but sometimes they form feeding flocks with other herons, egrets, and shorebirds. I love to visit the Scarborough Marsh in Maine and I've seen great blue herons, um, great egrets, and snowy egrets all together. As we've discovered, great blue herons are certainly great. As a fledgling birder, I only cared about big birds. If it weren't for a few formative close-up great blue heron encounters, I doubt my passion for birds would have grown to this degree. I'm so glad these gregarious big birds are so common and allow people to witness their glory. Sometimes, All people need to get committed to learning is a couple engaging encounters with education in a fun, accessible setting. So Meg, in your own words, why does the world need science? What is the value of the academic or professional study of the natural world?
1: It's a big question, well.
0: I go big most of the time. Yeah. Like the great blue hair. I go great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah. Um, why does the world need science I feel like science does so much for modern society it is kind of the way that we make sense of the world it's, our, it's a, a set of tools for answering questions for solving the mysteries mm-hmm. of the natural world so I feel like it's got it has this like mystical component to it of, mm-hmm. of helping us answer the questions you know of of how the world around us functions and then i also feel like it plays an important role in today's society of of informing the way we structure things like thinking of policies and public health like science Mm. is a way to differentiate patterns and like using data to to prove or disprove things as opposed to you know anyone can claim anything Mm. so it provides a sense of order and a way to move forward if that makes sense
0: yeah and i think that can be applied not just to biological science but other types of ways that we make sense of the world too
1: absolutely yeah i think a lot of public health when i think mm-hmm. of like good what the good that it does the need for it of you know modern medicine and, mm-hmm. and even responding to the pandemic you know Science is behind doing all of that well um, in a well-informed way. And one thing that is beautiful about science and, you know, having literature, written, written language in general is the ability to build on Mm -hmm. previous work. And, you know, in biology and chemistry and, and the natural sciences, every question that you ask now or study that you do is building off of the mistakes and successes of of other research. It makes me think of that that Newton quote, Isaac Newton, If I have seen far it 's because I s- stood upon the shoulders of giants. Mm. you know and I really think so much of the beauty of modern society, which you know has a lot of dark sides as well, but mm. a lot of the beautiful pieces of that have been possible because of science.
0: Mm-hmm. Perfectly said, I think in an understandable way too. Because I think I, you know, I am the kind of person that in my spare time goes out and like grabs frogs to observe, or like I'll look at birds to try and figure out what they're eating and why they're eating that stuff. But when you think about science being like a part of everything, I think it makes it a bit more digestible. It's like in my head, I'm asking like. Why are the goat's eyes? Why do they have horizontal pupils like a frog? Or, like, why does the salamander sleep for nine months and then be active? How can that be? And it's like these are things that seem almost impossible to understand. Whereas there are also things that are controlled by science that are pretty easy to digest. I don't think it has to be as obtuse.
1: Yeah, my, uh, when I was in grad school, one of my, I lived with a good friend. And we would make jokes of turning everything into a research project. Mm. <laughs> um, really stupid grad student humor. But like we had a lot of squeaky spots in the kitchen. Mm. And so that was one of our go-tos, was that we were going to build a whole a research, uh, scientific study of the squeaky spots in the bathroom or in the kitchen. Wow. Um, and I feel like I was also thinking about, I remember reading about this uh, kid who for one of his School projects. Um, he wanted to see how, like how many surfaces a, a cat's butt touches. Oh no! Did you hear about that? No. And so he put like lipstick on the butt of the cat <laughs> to see, and then you can you get a mark when that mm-hmm. butt actually comes in contact, and that's science, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like yeah, I think it's just this this set of tools that we can use to. To answer any, you know, silly questions like that, too. Mm
0: -hmm. See, that's fun. Like, I'm laughing because it's funny and fun. But if I, like, try to imagine being that kid, he's conducting research.
1: Absolutely. Like, he's
0: getting quantifiable data and understanding the patterns of a living thing. Like, it's, I think if we as adults, I'm going to say, like, for the adult listeners, if you kind of approach these big topics as a kid would it can make it really fun and really interesting so maybe next time you're taking a walk and you're like seeing these common birds every day like pigeons or american crows try and think of a fun science experiment that you could do just observing them like if i give a crow three uh cat food kibbles a day How long will it take for me to train the crow to steal money from people's wallets? That's not a great experience, but it's been done. (laughs) Um, You know, I love that you said, like, we can turn everything into research. That's really inspiring. So, speaking of research, can you tell us a bit about some of the areas of your? professional research
1: yeah so my day job is as a scientist (laughs) and then my dream job is a socio-ecological researcher (laughs) so the research that I've done in some of my international travels and work is kind of what excites me the most because I've always been interested in the natural world but my real passion is that intersection between people And conservation people and and nature Mm. and socio-ecological research was kind of a a way to look at that Um, and really just a way to be able to talk to people and call it research Mm. (laughs) so I just moved back to Maine from Argentina where I lived for about a year and a half I was lucky enough to get a Fulbright fellowship to go down there and do research on this protected area. Uh, so I lived on the coast um, of Patagonia in Argentina, pretty far south. And the, my project there was, there's a protected area that's mostly marine, the, some coastline in the ocean, that an NGO down there is trying to expand. There's a lot of important habitat for a lot of marine species. And they think you know let's utilize that there's already a protected area there make it bigger yeah. is with that, that comes private
0: land or what's the challenge
1: for expanding the protected area um there is private land the land itself is private and mm-hmm. then the ocean is owned by the province hmm. and the state the, the country oh they want to expand Argentina.
0: it into the ocean too yes
1: yeah so the focus is marine Got there it. Okay. so and you get into start wading deep into politics and, and regulations mm-hmm. uh, when you talk about national parks or provincial parks. So anyways, my research was talking to people in this small town that's kind of at the epicenter. If this protected area were to expand, this town would really be kind of the nucleus mm-hmm. of that. And so I wanted to know what people there thought about it. Uh, Most of the work of this NGO is people who have come from Buenos Aires, from the city, and are trying to implement conservation work. Now they have much more involvement from townspeople, Mm -hmm. but initially it was kind of people from the outside coming in. And so my goal was to understand well kind of the complexity of perspectives of local people Mm -hmm. about, you know, what do they know and think about conservation, about marine life, what do people use the ocean resources for, and how would that align with or conflict with what the NGO is trying to do? Hmm. Um, and that was my main project. So I would basically walk up to people's houses, <laughs> knock on their door, <laughs> and say hi. Do you have some time to talk? Um, and then we would chat.
0: And they thought you were going to tell them about the good news, right? You have your little Bible and their packet. <laughs> So I'm very curious to hear some of the responses. Of what was the general opinions on this kind of foreign entity, maybe from a big city, coming and saying, we know what's best for you and your area and your lifestyle.
1: Yeah. Um, there was a wide variety of, of perspectives and opinions. There is a decent amount of resistance. Hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty common at the initial phase you know, change is hard, yeah. and this is um, a pretty isolated town in Patagonia, really small, less than 2,000 people mm. live there, so they're not fond of outsiders coming in. Um, there's also a perception that is threatening their way of life, they have an identity as a fishing town, mm. which really is a little bit um, removed from the reality, there are few people Statistically, the amount of people in town, very few um, actually work in fishing and and make their money that way. But they still have this sense that they are a fishing town. And so it's like Mm. you're taking that, you're trying to take that away from us. It's also all sheep ranches, like everywhere around for hundreds, thousands of hectares or acres are sheep ranches. And the NGO is trying to do some work with pumas and reintroducing, you know, top predator species. Mm -hmm. Or protecting them. And so, you know, there's, there's inherent conflict, um, as is often the case at mm-hmm. kind of the beginning of these projects. But there's also um, a lot, there's a lot of reason for hope and a lot of people who believe in the importance of that work and who understand the threats, you know, climate change in general, the fishing industry's impact on the ocean and its resources down there is huge. Mm-hmm. And people know that. And recognize that. And so there are a lot of people who support the work of the NGO because of that as well.
0: So, mm-hmm. two questions. One is what are some of the birds that were would be impacted by an expansion into that protected area? So glad you asked.
1: <laughs> so, the, <laughs> this, the star of <laughs> this region is the penguin. Oh. Um, <laughs> they're Magellanic penguins that spend about half of the year uh, all over the coast there mm. and on the islands that are part of their protected areas, It's important nesting ground for them. Yeah. Um, so that was a trip.
0: You <laughs> just, saw them?
1: Just, I saw them all the
0: time. Oh. <laughs> Did you see them while they're nesting or just coming and going from the land?
1: All, all of but... the above. There is a, um, a nesting area just south of the town I was in, and so there were several of thousands, Whoa. if I'm not mistaken, um, that nest there. Hmm. And oh my god, little teenage penguins. They're fuzzy. so fuzzy and oh. awkward, oh. and they've got like patches of no feathers on their neck. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they have few feathers on their body, and then oh. they just have this puffy scarf around their neck of <laughs> gray feathers. They are just so awkward and beautiful and loud. I had. Do you want to hear?
0: I want to hear you rehear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did you record that?
1: My so my friend lives on the island and, and is doing work. Right. Nice. Um. And I asked him. He sent me that this morning. <laughs> that is awesome. I don't know that I want to do an impression okay. of that.
0: It sounds like a donkey is playing a kazoo. <laughs> That's what I'm
1: picturing. Imagine thousands of them. gosh. Yeah, they're very noisy. Gosh, they're cute. Watching them waddle around on land is just a true joy.
0: I, penguins have always been close to my heart. When I was a kid, I think I've mentioned this before, I cared about two birds, owls and penguins.
1: I mean, like that makes sense. the
0: coolest birds.
1: Yeah. So penguins, mm-hmm. there are also a lot of cormorants. Ooh. Um, Petrels, yeah. big, just like mean-looking birds, but beautiful. So impressive. And then on land, just so many. Choiques are a, a common bird that mm. are kind of like the South American ostrich. Flightless birds, beautiful.
0: Hmm. If you could name
1: a favorite bird from your time in Argentina,
0: what would it be?
1: Favorites have always been... Just a tough one for me. Mm.
0: How about top two?
1: I mean, penguin—it's—it's it's cop out, but like yeah. they're just so cute. And then a land bird. A land bird. Maybe martinetta. Uh. I don't know how you say their name in English, hmm. but they are like think California quail.
0: Aww.
1: Um, yeah, they're like
0: a little walking around. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they just you know they run like the quails Aww. do, and God, the cutest thing in the world was when they would have, I don't know, a dozen chicks and those tiny little fluff balls, you'd catch them sometimes on the side of the road and they'd Aww. all be running together. <laughs> it I was. There's nothing cuter.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you see any herons?
1: I did. What yeah, kind? There is a, um, a kokoi heron, hmm. which I don't know if they were as far south as I was, hmm. um, but when I was looking at they look exactly like great blue herons. Mm-hmm. Those are common in Argentina. And then black crowned night herons I saw quite often as well, which are here yeah, too.
0: All over. I love that you mentioned the cocoe, which you said looks like a great blue heron, and sure enough, it's extremely closely related to the great blue heron. That and the gray heron are one of three species, including the great blue heron, that used to be considered one species. Really? Yeah. So nowadays they're uh, what scientists would consider a super species. Whoa. Yeah. Its head is a little different. We're looking at the Koko'i. See? And it's got kind of a white neck, gray body, and more dark bits on the head and shoulders. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those, those All throughout were. South
1: America. Yeah.
0: And the main difference is the plumage. So when we think back to like what we're saying about the great white heron, how they can still like interbreed and they live in the same habitat and the only difference is really the plumage. I can see it with the great blue heron
1: there too. Absolutely.
0: When we first met at Maine Audubon, it was actually at a volunteer kind of get together end of the season thing. And they were giving out stickers of different local birds that called the marsh, Scarborough Marsh home. And I got the Willet sticker, which I remember making a joke about. It. I'm like, of course they gave Will
1: the Willet. Yeah.
0: But I do love Willets because they were one of the first unique birds that I saw in Maine that I had never seen. They were a life bird for me at the marsh. They were almost like a sub-spark bird. So if you had to choose a spark bird for Maine or your whole life, what would yours be?
1: The western tanager. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I lived... vibrant. Oh, I lived on an island, like I mentioned earlier, in Southern California for a couple of years. And I did this self-directed uh, nature training program hmm. called the Kamana One Exploring Natural Mystery by John Young. I brought oh. my book with me. I'm showing it to Will. And it's just a series of stories cool. and then prompts and activities to help you learn to be able to look around you and observe well. Hmm. and part of the activities was to do a, a sit spot in the morning mm. so you'd go outside for 10-15 minutes sit and just see what you see and that is when i fell in love with birds because uh-huh. everything would be quiet and still in the morning and the only movement was often birds and then just looking at them i would want to know what they were yeah and uh, i was sitting by the beach one morning and saw this elderberry shrub full of these vibrant yellow and red spots no way and i there was probably a few dozen they were migrating through hmm. and i just remember thinking it was just the most beautiful thing i would ever seen like how what are they mm-hmm. <laughs> how is that possible They're, they were so bright and if you've never seen a western tanager, look it up, because they've got these black and white wings and these yeah. yellow bodies and this red head. And they are a spark.
0: Yeah. In and of
1: themselves. Literally <laughs> the
0: absolute perfect spark bird and story. Actually, I didn't, I don't know why I assumed this, but I thought they were more solitary birds. I've only seen one, one time. And it was just alone and really high up in the canopy. So maybe that's why I'm like, oh, I can't even imagine, like, dozens of them that's crazy like that's not a spark that's like a
1: fire yeah (laughs) yeah it was like the elderberry was on fire wow
0: great blue herons are dinosaur-like amazing birds many people see every day they are found all throughout the united states and can be considered a keystone species An indicator of a healthy ecosystem the more we learn about birds the more we learn we don't know about birds nailed it these birds in particular are many people's spark birds the bird that sparked a lifelong interest in birds i believe education can have a similar effect on people sometimes it just takes learning one fact or going down one metaphorical rabbit hole to spark a lifelong thirst knowledge. Not everyone has access to higher education, unpaid internships, the ability to be away from home in the field for long periods of time, or other demanding qualifiers necessary for breaking into scientific research-based careers. How can the average everyday citizen get engaged with the scientific community?
1: Am I the expert on that?
0: You are being asked.
1: (laughs) yes Um, oh there there are many ways I think one is just reading there's just so much out there Mm -hmm. that's easily accessible nowadays which is amazing and then if you live in a place where there are events you know in at least in Maine there are a lot of events where you can go and engage and learn and then I think the best is volunteer opportunities getting involved in in local NGOs, nonprofits, conservation groups, parks—you know—sometimes specific places will have mm-hmm. volunteer opportunities. That's how we met, volunteering for Maine Audubon um, for one of their bird count days. And they're just so fun, and you don't need to know anything usually mm-hmm. um, for volunteer opportunities. And you often, at least with Maine Audubon, I've worked with the most knowledgeable people, some of who do that some of whom do that for work and some of whom just are interested yeah and are incredibly knowledgeable just out of curiosity a lifetime of curiosity so i think i would just encourage everyone to find a saturday or a half day afternoon to go out and volunteer with some kind of conservation focused because it's really fun i feel this is my work i work in the environmental realm mm. and I feel so re-inspired after I do any kind of volunteer yeah.
0: event. I was going to mention that, too. That's how we met. No matter what your background is or your experience or skills, there's some way for you to get involved with volunteering.
1: And you can make friends. Mm-hmm. You are my first birder friend in Maine.
0: And you are my first Maine
1: friend. Wow.
0: I know, right? This, and this is for what volunteering. Yeah.
1: So.
0: Yeah, one of the first things I did when I moved to Maine was, where can I volunteer? And, you know, now I have friends, and it's a great way to feel fulfilled.
1: Feel fulfilled.
0: Sometimes it takes a really exciting experience like that for people's interest in volunteering or science to get that spark of growth. But sometimes it can be kind of challenging for people to break out in these types of activities because they don't see themselves doing that kind of thing, or they don't see themselves represented in that area of the community. Before, I've talked about how birding was hard for me to kind of get engaged with because I didn't know anybody that cared about birds at all. Nobody in my family had ever even known what the word birding was and I didn't know how to like engage with the community. So in your opinion, what is the value of having a diverse host of voices engaging with the scientific community?
1: Well, I think first of all, what you said, I think the more diversity we have represented already within the community, the more you're gonna open the gates Mm -hmm. to more people who identify with people that they see so the more people of color that you have the more that's gonna potentially invite or make an inviting space mm-hmm. for more people of color I think for me as a younger person in the birding community that's another thing I, I think we were probably one of few people at that event exactly or below 55 60 yeah um, I So, 60. and you know just having more people who you identify with whatever whichever identity that is the more you will feel like it is a space that you can inhabit and then on a more scientific level i think just the more overlap we have between everyday people and science and mm-hmm. scientists and the overlap between science and policy science and the public you know i think that's incredibly important because science isn't going to accomplish much in its own little silo, yeah. um, and so we, we just need as much interconnection as possible between science and everyone.
0: And that's quite literally what you were doing in Argentina, right? You were talking to this community that was directly impacted by what science is trying to do down there, what this NGO is trying to do, and you wanted to learn what their thoughts were. Maybe they had their own ways of conserving the creatures and the land that the NGO hadn't considered. Right. Yeah, it's like if we just assume that we know everything or we know best, we'll potentially miss out on important data. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add about your research or people engaging with
1: science? I've been thinking about Great Blue Heron and its connection with my life hmm. um, and my, my day job as I mentioned is a scientist and my focus is ecological risk assessment hmm. so I look at contaminated sites and analyze what kind of impact that may be having uh, on on birds on mammals and plants and the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has a, a set of indicator, key indicator species, mm-hmm. that they use, that they have a lot of data on to assess potential impacts to these different guilds or like categories yeah. of wildlife. And the great blue heron is the indicator species for piscivorous birds, so birds mm. who eat fish. Interesting. Um, so they are, there's all the these like Specific numbers that have to do with their body size, their consumption rate—that you can use to demonstrate or analyze impact to birds that eat fish. Hmm. So they are like the model for that. Yeah, which I thought was cool.
0: What is another example of birds that maybe eat insects? Do they have, you know, what their
1: model is? They're well. They would be in in Uh, or insectivorous hmm. birds. Um, I believe the woodcock is the EPA uh, model species for that. Hmm. Um, they tend to be some of the most sensitive to contamination. Right. Because they're, they're usually they're down really in, in it, there. you know? Yeah.
0: I've only seen them a few times. I think the most fun fact. I already spoiled was the great white heron. It's just its existence. I feel like that's really wild because there are also birds in the wild that are completely white that shouldn't be. So you may have heard of albino creatures and leucistic creatures, birds. These are birds that don't have any melon in their feathers or sometimes body pigmentation's gone, so their feathers are just all white. And I find it fascinating because the great white heron basically looks like a leucistic heron, great blue heron. But it's its own thing, and when they reproduce, they're also white. So when I was in Utah, I went to Tracy Aviary, which is one of two aviaries in the United States, like dedicated aviaries, and they had a couple of completely white birds that were leucistic and it was really weird to see they had a black crowned night heron that was all white Crazy. and they retrieve them from the wild when they're reported because they can't survive like shining beacons to predators (laughs) and other things. Speaking of threats for great blue herons there's kind of a lot out there going against them. One of their main threats is Ariel Predator. So when they're nesting, like I mentioned, they're really high up in trees, and usually there isn't too much cover for them for their nests. So birds like bald eagles or red tailed hawks would love to fly in and scoop up a grape herring chick. But they can also be attacked by cats, other little things like minks. When the chicks follow the nest, that's like a free lunch or even like a little house cat. So please keep your cats inside. Also, I think as we mentioned, the loss of habitat is impacting them. Though they can adapt fairly well to man-made wetlands and bodies of water, it is really important to preserve their natural habitat. So like marshes and inland wetlands, even coastal areas, they'll fish in tide pools Uh, when we develop these areas of land we get rid of where they nest and what they eat so it's important for us to keep their natural habitat even if they're adaptable something also kind of interesting about great blue herons and their interactions with people they were once poached like very brutally when europeans came over to the americas and they saw these beautiful birds large birds with large plumage they would kill them to take the feathers for hats or clothes or whatever so that was a huge threat to them good thing we don't wear
1: feathered hats anymore
0: or they're like fake feathers thankfully like government regulation has put a stop to that same story with the puffin
1: what did they make out of puffins hats hats yeah waterproof hats
0: yeah probably (laughs) No, so it's really sad, like in Maine in particular, you you might know this, the Atlantic puffin, which nests just off the coast here, was highly sought after by entrepreneurs in like the 1800s, early 1900s for their colorful plumage. They'd like kill the bird and rip out the white feathers or the like darker black feathers too sometimes and make women's hats. And like decimate dozens of birds to get one hat. So they were gone from Maine for like a hundred years or so. Yeah. And thankfully, there's like a um, nesting colony in Canada up the coast that survived, and they were able to, well, NGOs, nonprofits in the area were able to work with that nesting colony to reintroduce the puff into Maine. Yeah. I mean, how many birds have disappeared because of greedy people?
1: Way more than should have been. Yeah.
0: Speaking of their feathers, great blue herons have a special type of feather on their chest. So they have what is called powder down feathers. So essentially these are little patches of thin feathers that grow forever when they're molting they don't that doesn't affect them at all and basically as the feather gets long it disintegrates into a powder and that powder is used to protect their chest plumage from gross fish guts and slime and viscera because they're stabbing and slicing and whatever all these creatures so it it's like a napkin almost for them wow and they can use their unique claws to scratch their chest and cover their toes in the powder down and then spread it on their other feathers to give them this kind of protective coat. It's like semi water resistant as well so that's kind of a reason too but I've never heard of any other bird with powder down like that.
1: Yeah
0: Uh, Yeah my kind of last couple of points for the great blue heron it is a, quite a spiritual bird for a lot of people. It's one of the most popular tattoos for people when they want a bird that is kind of a majestic type of beautiful creature. If you go on like something like Instagram and search "bird tattoo, I guarantee you, in the top five results, great blue hair, great blue hair, great blue hair. And throughout the centuries and a lot of Native American lore in particular, Great blue herons are representatives of wisdom and patience and sovereignty. These very confident creatures and kind of they have an imposing, demanding presence. So yeah,
1: yeah, that. that makes sense.
0: For thousands of years, mankind has been studying birds. Birds have the ability to ignite limitless curiosity in people which can be at least partially satiated with learning. The first step to building empathy for the common critters is learning why they matter. I hope today you have learned a little more about why great blue herons matter and how you can make the world a better place for them. One way people can better their understanding of our common critters is scientific research, supporting scientists, and encouraging conservation. So Meg, do you have any questions for me or anything else you'd like to add about Great Blue hairs?
1: My first question is not related, hmm. but have you seen the albino humpback whale? No. I'm talking about albino, we'll, we'll look yes. it up later. Yes, Listeners, okay. this doesn't get cut out. Look at it, <laughs> it's unbelievable. My question for you, Will, is if you could be any type of ologist, what would you be? Tomorrow, suddenly, you just have all the knowledge and a job working as a, I guess you can't say ornithologist. Cause yeah, too I know. I'd like, yeah.
0: uh, easy. My, well, my first thought was, as I've mentioned, the herpetologist. Because I have been so into amphibians and reptiles lately. I find them so boring. The other day, I went on a walk with no, none other than Paul. Who has
1: shout out to Paul?
0: Shout out to Paul. He's joined us <laughs> on this podcast, and we were gently lifting some logs to see what creatures are under there, and just looking at the salamanders and how they move. I'm like doing a swim, kind of swimming motion. And that's like how they walk. I'm like that. What are you like? That's <laughs> so. I think I yeah. That's probably like my go-to. But after listening to you talk today, I would also be interested in. Something like anthropologist. Listeners, my challenge for you is go out and see if you can find a Great Blue Heron. Go to a local beach if you're on water or maybe a lake, even a stream. I was recently in North Carolina and walking through downtown Charlotte, saw a Great Blue Heron. Like wow. this is, they're all over the place. That's your challenge. Go find a great blue heron. So Meg, thank you so much for joining me and talking about great blue herons.
1: Thanks for having me, Will. This, I, I was so excited to be asked to join this <laughs> podcast.
0: I'm glad. This is fun. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you learned something new about our common feathered friends or the wild world of birding. Interested in learning more between episodes? Check out the Wills Bird Brain Instagram account for supplemental facts, promo videos, and complimentary bird photography at Wills Bird Brain. You may also shoot me an email at WillsBirdBrain at gmail.com. I would love to hear which bird you'd like to learn about next. Want to help me keep this show on the air? Consider joining the Wills Bird Brain Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you gain exclusive access to Will's Birdbrain content, including bonus episodes, live streams, video content, and more. Think of it like buying me a cup of coffee while we walk around the park talking about birds. It's quick and easy to sign up. Peck the link in the show notes for direct access. Want to support in other ways? The Will's Birdbrain Etsy shop is still open featuring all your favorite bird stickers from season one buy two stickers and get a free logo sticker with every order leaving reviews and sharing the show also greatly supports will's bird brain i love hearing your thoughts and gaining encouragement from the flock until next time keep up with the common critters